Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Canadian actor Elliot Page released one of the most successful and important memoirs of the year in his book, Page Boy. And he talks about growing up in small town Nova Scotia, finding fame through film and TV, and discovering who he really is. It's one of our favorite conversations of the year, so you'll hear my conversation with Elliot Page about his life so far. That's coming up. Plus, when your debut album wins Album of the Year, how do you make a second album? Do you feel that pressure? Do you second-guess yourself? That happened to Charlotte Cardin, the songwriter from Montreal. She's here to talk about dealing with that, and she sat down at our grand piano in our studio and played one of her new songs for you. So that's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So you might remember uh, this from the news at the time. When he was 20 years old, the actor Elliot Page, who is from Halifax, Nova Scotia, was nominated for an Oscar, an Academy Award. It made news at the time because it made him the fourth youngest person up for his category and because it was for the movie Juno, which was getting a lot of attention at the time. Elliot played a, a young person facing the decision of what to do with an unplanned pregnancy. And that movie made Elliot Page a global superstar. I mean, he had big roles in films like, I just got a list here, Ex- uh, Inception, X-Men, Hard Candy. So while all that was happening, it was it was a really big deal. But here's what we didn't know. All that time, actually before that time, Elliot was facing a deep inner struggle. It took him years to have the courage to come out as gay, which he did in 2014 in a very public speech he gave at the Human Rights Campaign's Time to Thrive conference in Las Vegas. And then in 2020, Elliot came out as trans, again in a very public Instagram post and magazine cover. So yeah, that's very public what we know about Elliot up to this point. But his memoir is about something more private. The struggle to understand who you really are, to live as your authentic self in the entertainment industry, which more and more seems to prioritize that less, wants less authenticity from you, or they want fabricated authenticity that feels authentic. I'm happy to tell you the book also tells the story of a fellow who's found himself healed and has found himself experiencing tremendous joy. So I went to Elliot Page's publisher's office in Toronto. We sat down with two microphones and we had a conversation when this book came out. It's one of our favorite conversations of the year, so I wanted you to hear it. Here's my conversation with Elliot Page. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm not too bad. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I uh, loved reading it. Um, I've already told you a little bit about why I loved reading it, because it, it had some lovely nostalgic things for another you know, 36-year-old growing up on the East Coast of Canada. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I was kind of curious about why you... I think there comes a time in everybody's life where they decide, okay, I'm going to tell my own story. Or everyone in a memoir's life, like, I'm, I'm going to tell my own story. What, what was that moment for you? Goodness, I think there were, it was a couple things, I suppose. And um, 
you know, like writing a book had come up before in, in my life and I couldn't wrap really my head around it. And, and, and I didn't really think it was possible, quite frankly. I mean, when it came up again... And then when I actually did have, you know, space that was open to potentially embark on such a thing, I really felt so exhilarated because for the first time I could actually sit down with myself, was comfortable enough to do such a thing, had the space in in my brain to actually create. And in many ways it was as, as if I started writing and words just came like I couldn't stop and that sensation was so incredibly exhilarating and in this climate we've found ourselves with such extreme anti-trans rhetoric lies and misinformation about our lives it felt like an opportunity to um to grasp with having this platform that I have in knowing how much stories have helped me, have changed my life, have offered me comfort and support. And I felt like by potentially sharing mine, if that could reach anyone and allow them to feel less alone or seen, that felt worth it to me, I suppose. And, uh, and yeah, those two things like happened to collide, I'd, I'd say, at, at, at the same time. You said you, you didn't think it was possible for a while. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, I was just so uncomfortable in, in myself. The, the thought of even being able to sit down for hours and create was not feasible, like not, not a part of my reality uh, at all. And since stepping into my truth, so, so to speak, and being a bo- in a body that feels like my own, feeling embodied in the way that they, I do, uh, confidence in the way that I do, the sort of creative energy and force that has come uh, th- with that, through that, has just been kind of, you know, indescribable. Not something that I had imagined in my past. I did struggle to to see a future. I did not know I, what my future would look like. Really? Uh-huh. And so that's, yeah, that's what I mean by that. I mean, what a beautiful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Not something I, the way I feel now and the, the presence I feel now is, is not something that I believe to be possible in the past. That's lovely. Thanks. At the beginning of the book, you, you're very clear Trans narratives are not a monolith. My story is not the story of every trans person. Please don't read it that way. This is my own story. Yeah. T- t- talk to me about why you wanted to start the book that way. Well, I feel, you know, obviously there's more representation than there's been in the past, of course, but there's still very little. And it's something I uh, obviously am, 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 mind, am mindful of and the complexities that come with visibility no doubt it's important it's crucial you know uh, it's it's meant so much to me people being visible um seeing ourselves reflected knowing we're not alone with these thoughts we're having with this shame we're carrying that we shouldn't be that's not our own um 
but also, uh, you know, backlash comes with visibility, which disproportionately affects, of course, the most marginalized and vulnerable people in the community. And my life is not reflective of most trans people's experiences. People who disproportionately experience unemployment, experience homelessness, violence, um, incarceration, particularly black trans people. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's important that, you know, my story is not some sort of universalized story for potentially some people who might not be as familiar with the trans community or have not read a lot of the books by trans and queer authors that I most certainly wish people would read. Yeah, but people would read, the worry that people would read your story and go like, well, now I get it. Exactly. Now, now, now I understand the right. trans experience. Yeah. Shortly in the book, not the, not the very first part, because I know the very first chapter was sort of came out of you um, very naturally. I've heard you talk about that. You know, you sort of write, writing and it just kind of streamed out of you the very first, first chapter. But then the second chapter, I was curious as to why it came so early in the book. And it's sort of about the, I think you call it the sexuality sweepstakes. And um, it's around maybe the months before Juno comes out or right around the time Juno comes out. And there's a lot of uh, speculation. And I, I might even add like pretty gross speculation, including here in Canada around, around you. Why did you want to go there so early in the book? Well, I mean, the book obviously is nonlinear <laughs> and inherently is, is nonlinear and structured that way to at least, you know, for me to reflect mm, how I feel in my experience as a trans and queer person. And I think a lot of people can relate to knowing who you are when you're really young, but not necessarily having the language for it. Then getting older, a lot of noise getting in the way, people filling you with ideas and, and narratives that mislead you from your truth, um, getting close, pulling back, getting close, pulling back, yeah. which is, you know, reflected in this book. And um, for me, I wanted to start with a period that was in a time when I really, I, I felt like I was creeping closer to my truth, so to speak, or at least getting to a place where I was no longer going to allow shame to rule my life as much as it had growing up and in my adolescence. Shame, shame. Shame. Yeah. And um, occupy, you know, my mind and my body or my desires or what have you. And so, you know, the first chapter sort of leading to that point. And then I felt like it was important to show that then that shift into being known in the first time when you know, uh, most people learned who I was as an actor and what have you. Yeah. Um, the impact of, you know, the sort of speculation and, and headlines that you're speaking to and the pressure from the Hollywood machine, you know, to deny and reject the person that I am. And uh, so it felt sort of important to kind of launch off with that. Kind of set up the stakes for what you were dealing with at the time. Sure. How did you feel writing about the shame? 
like just the experience of writing about it. Yeah, especially it. in your early days, yeah. Ooh. It's a hard um, one. I find shame the hardest emotion to deal with in my own life. Yeah. I find guilt easier. I find anger easier. I find joy and all that stuff very pleasant. Mm-hmm. But when something boils down to shame for me, I find it very hard to access and even admit to myself. So I, I was curious about the act of having to write about feeling internalized shame when you were young. In many ways, there was something incredibly cathartic and healing writing about it to be able to revisit those periods and write about it in an honest way. I think particularly, you know, in that time or in that time after Juno came out, I felt guilty and <laughs> um, about feeling any negative emotion. Like I uh, just felt, oh, you're so ungrateful. Yeah. Like this is this thing so many people want and um, being told your dreams are coming true all the time when quite frankly, I was not feeling that way. That was yeah. not a celebratory time for me whatsoever. And I was quite miserable, quite frankly. So writing about it was, I mean, interesting because sometimes it, it it could be difficult. Like I would have a physiological response, you know, I'd feel my body curling in like, really? oh yeah, it's sweaty, like really. And, and I don't know too if it's because I'm never written a book before, you know, and I don't know if it's because I'm an actor. So there's like a physical element to my work and I don't know if I'm like, feeling that and that's what allows words to happen or vice versa or what's going on there. But, um, but there was something incredibly healing to write very honestly and vulnerable, vulnerably and openly, particularly about a time where I was so, so, so closeted and like, yeah, like private's not the word that it's closeted, you know, and to be able to sit and just write it all out without judging myself, at least not judging myself too much. You know? um, <laughs> it uh, was, you know, a new experience for me. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised you had that sort of, I've heard that before about people having these sort of like physical, visceral reactions to kind of writing down these yeah. childhood experiences or like young, young experiences. Yeah. There's um something to be said for that time too, because, I mean, I only knew you from movies and TV and stuff like that. What, what struck me reading this book is the characters you were playing, I mean, help me out here, were very, like, outspoken. Like, your, your roles in f- TV and film were almost known for being, if you were to be typecast as anything, it would be for, like, being this outspoken, you know, sort of confident character. And, of course, as a viewer, you can get that conflated with the person behind the, I mean, it's common, right? Did that irony ever descend on you that you were making your living and, and getting fame and attention playing these really outspoken characters while inside sort of hiding your own self? Mm. Well, in some ways, I think, like, particularly in my late teens, in some ways, I really, I, I was confident and outspoken. I mm. could take the producer of Juno to use clothing stores in Vancouver and being like, this is what she's going to wear, mm-hmm. you know, and felt felt able to to communicate those things, at least from a creative standpoint. And then in so many ways, I feel like that got squashed, I mean, literally, in the 
when that movie became the surprise hit, it became unprofitable. All of a sudden, they didn't seem to want the magic that I brought to that character that made that character special, you know? No. Like, that was shoved away, you know? You had gotten this, I must, help, help me understand this, you had I'm gotten I'm saying this. I think my queerness and my transness is a part of what made Juno cool, yeah. you know? What made that character special and, and resonate in a new way, particularly with a lot of young audience members, you know? And, and then in terms of the actual promoting of, of, of the film and its success, that was apparently not allowed in that space. I understand. And I think entering, you know, I'd been working since I was 10, but not obviously like in the midst of that very, very Hollywood world, which yeah. was a shock to me and all very, very new for me. Yeah, Pit Pony's not quite the same. <laughs> Pit Pony's not quite the same. <laughs> and I think I, you know, I got, you know, veered off course in regards to my own personal trajectory and what I needed to, um, where I needed to get to in my life. And obviously I, I, I made a choice to go along with it, but it definitely felt like, mm, it didn't feel like I had that much of a choice though. No. Yeah. And, and I don't know why it took so long. That's a part of how I felt writing the book. If there was some sort of like big question as I wrote the book, one of my, one of the ones that kept coming up for me was why did this take so long? What do you mean? Like, you? why did this take so long? Coming out, becoming my authentic self. Why did that have to take so long? I feel like I lost a lot of time. Did you get any answers? Yeah, a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in writing about the times where I dealt with the, you know, my external world, how I was being perceived or the ways in which I was shamed or dismissed or told to not be myself or that being myself was a bad thing. Yeah. If I was myself, I wasn't going to have success or in the moments in my life where I did try to come out on some level or did try to make the first even tiny little steps to share who I was, whether in personal life with family or um, in the industry itself, some of the reactions and the feedback I got understandably just created this layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of shame and embarrassment that I swallowed and it lived in my body and, um, and, held, and it held me back. Did you have to let yourself off the hook for those feelings? As I was writing the book, you mean? You I guess know, like, so. I don't even know, Elliot, what I want to ask about that. There's just something nagging in my head, but I want to be careful about it. Like, if you, if you're, when you say to me, you know, Tom, the, the feeling I had was what took so long. And, you know, when you have shame built into you and all that stuff, I wondered, like, did you have to let yourself off the hook for why did it take so long? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot of, you know, compassion for myself, of course. Yeah. Um, I felt very alone in those periods, very yeah. isolated. I didn't really have like a queer community. I didn't, I did have a lot to like dig through to get to where I needed to be and a lot of pressure to not get there. Um, and at the same time, it's, I do, you know, reflect back and know that, you know, I, I very much played a role in that as well. Out of the way you write about the people who were kind to you, 
I love the way you write about, um, is it Catherine Keener? Mm-hmm. The sea, sea Keens. Do you still have the tattoo, yeah. by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right there? Yeah. Yeah, the, for people who don't know, like the actor, uh, Catherine Keener. Uh, well, you, you tell me. What, what am I going to do? Oh. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, let me tell you what she did. Yeah. No, please, t- t- like, talk to me a little bit about, I love that chapter, about how helpful she was during this time of your life, you know, that you were just finished talking to me about, or you think you finished talking to me about, um, how she was able to, to help you. Yeah, I don't know who I'd be or where I'd be without Keener. Um, We met shooting a film called An American Crime, which was a very intense film based on a true story from the uh, mid-60s in in Indiana. I played a character named Sylvia Likens who was brutally, brutally abused, um, mostly by this woman that Catherine played. And I was struggling in that period personally and playing that character was not easy and we um oh we really clicked kind of immediately and I'd already looked up to her I mean so much she was one of my favorite actors of all time so the fact that I was just getting to work with her was sensational and she just offered me so much love and support and care and is a person who's always seen me for me and always only ever encouraged me to be honest in myself. And then later when uh, I was in Los Angeles all the time during, you know, the sort of pinnacle of Juno's success and leading up to the Oscars and all of that, she took me from the hotel I was basically living in and let me live with her and really, really took care of me through that time and has always been there for me ever since. What were the feelings you had when you wrote about the people who helped you? Deep, deep gratitude. Yeah. You know, because when I say I don't know where I'd be without these certain people in my life, I really don't, you know, I actually really don't. Yeah. Coming up on the show, it's not an uncommon story to have to come out to your friends and family. But what happens when you have to make that decision publicly with the eyes of the world on you? Elliot Page answers that question after this on Q. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We're the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following, to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I feel so much joy when I'm hanging out with my trans friends and we're just together and sharing space and laughing and doing karaoke and, you know, to me that's key right now for joy is is community. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the uh, voice you're hearing right there, the Canadian actor Elliot Page. Elliot's memoir called Page Boy came out earlier this year. It's an excellent book. It's a revealing book. It's a very vulnerable book. And it's a book that led to one of our favorite conversations of the year, and that's why we're playing it for you today. The book is about Elliot's journey from growing up in Halifax in Nova Scotia 
to acting in major Hollywood films, to becoming a bona fide like worldwide superstar, to the abuse he suffered along the way, to coming out as gay, and then publicly coming out as trans. And that's worth mentioning. That comes up here. That whole journey was a process because uh, while Elliot came out as trans in 2020, it was 2014 that he told the world that he was gay. And I wanted to ask him about making that decision because unlike most people, he had had to make it publicly because he's a movie star. It wasn't sitting down at a couch, you know, talking to his, his friends. It was at a podium. You can imagine the conflicted feelings he felt that day. So I, I was wondering what he remembers about the day that he did it. Here's more of my conversation with Elliot Page. What strikes me, Elliot Pye, is that a couple of things that, that some people do privately and to their friends and family, like coming out to, to friends and family, you did or had to do very publicly. And actually, just before I walked over here, I watched the video of you in Vegas coming out as gay. I love the way you write about that in the book. What do you remember from that day? I remember being so nervous. Yeah. Next level nervous. Um, rereading and rereading and rereading and rereading the speech over and over again to try and make it like not doing everything I could to make it like emotionless on some level because at first like I just couldn't even I couldn't get through it. I like couldn't get through a paragraph. Just I you start crying carried you... so much emotion yeah. with that. Yeah. And um had been so closeted for so long. You know, this is, I came out when I was just, you know, a week before my 27th birthday. And I just, I remember getting to the hotel room in Vegas, like waiting before the, uh, before the moment and just laying in bed, just like holding my body, staring at nothing at all, just praying I wouldn't have a panic attack on stage. <laughs> just like, please get through this. So, a mixture of extreme nerves and the thrill of finally, finally being in a place to do that and to make that step, which wasn't where I ultimately needed to get to, Yeah, but was a giant leap towards it. It's not right away either. I watched the speech before I came here. Like I thought when I watched, because I read about it in the book and I figured I must watch it. And when I watched the big, I thought... Well, he's going to do it right off the top. But it's like six minutes in. So I can only imagine the trepidation and the nervousness you were feeling up until that moment. Yeah. And then I see this big... <sighs> kind of happen afterwards. Yeah. How was it afterwards? How was the, how was the rest of the day? How was the... The rest of the day was... Well, like that, there was uh, essentially a giant full body exhale and as if a bag of bricks I'd let go of, you know, really, truly in an instant. The rest of the day was, I think right after, very briefly went to like a queer bar. Uh, but then I had to fly. I had to quickly get to Montreal for reshoots for X-Men. But then even on that set, it was people were just like, you seem so different. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am. So again, you know, sure, there's been sort of multiple coming outs in my life. And I think we always focus on like before and after, particularly with trans narratives. But to me, it's uh, such a sort of like the structure of the book, such a nonlinear experience in yeah. so many ways. And that 
I wouldn't have gotten to where I needed to be without that moment and the space and the freedom that that allowed in my life. And first major step in having excavated a lot of shame that I'd been carrying. When did you, I want to be careful how I ask this, when did you start to realize what it might mean for you to come out as trans? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I mean, that's a good question because I, I even think back to, well, I mean, I think back to, and I write about this in the book around my 30th birthday, like right before I turned 30 or right after. And that was the first time I very much to myself and out loud to very few people, but some was starting to say like, I'm trans. I think I'm trans. Yeah. And I, I allowed that to exist for a moment. And then I, I really, really did. I shoved that away. And I think, I don't think a big part of that reason was, well, clearly I wasn't ready, I guess, but also the sense of how is this possible? Like just as a known actor, what does that look like? What does it mean to transition publicly? Like it just felt so big as it always had before when I did have a sense of who I was, very much so. And I would kind of constantly talk myself out of it, you know. Oh, no, you just need to learn to be more comfortable. You just need to get tighter sports bras. You just need to dress this way. You just need to get this haircut. You did it, da 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 And trying all these things because I was struggling to wrap my head around what, what that, how would that look like? What, what would that mean? And then, of course, you know, it wasn't for a few more years till I actually made the steps I, I needed to make to be myself and live my life. 3.5 million Instagram likes on that post, I think. The statement I wrote? Yeah. yeah. Again, back to the, the curiosity is not on the scale, but on the publicness, if that's a word, of uh, what is now, because it's on the CBC. Uh, the, the publicness of it. The, the thing that some people have to do privately or some people have to do, you know, to friends and family or for coworkers and stuff like that. Like, so such a public thing to do. What happens after that Instagram after that post goes up, what does your phone look like? What does... I think I think I might have put the phone down. <laughs> My friend Mark, actually, uh, who I write about in the book, who's in the first and the last chapter, and who is from Toronto, and took care of me, came in and took care of me after my surgery. He lives three hours outside of the city, but he actually came in back in for that day, which was very sweet of him. It's very nice. Because um, it was intense you know, isolation period during the pandemic. And as I recall, it was very much a time of, yeah, setting setting the phone aside and us just going for a walk with the dog and, you know, just, but, um, you know, I felt enormous support from people, of course. Um, a lot of people close to me, of course, already knew, and if they didn't know, weren't remotely surprised. <laughs> and uh, and anyone who was, you know, just sent sent love to me. And I made a point of not looking at a lot of things because I, you know, oh, yeah. I didn't want to invite in anything that was going to be like hateful or or harmful. You know, you didn't want to. You didn't want to. Look, look too hard for anything that might make you feel a certain way or yeah. make you more of that shame or more of that. 
Yeah, don't need that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this in the office, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine last night. Like, there's a world in which coming out as trans in, like, 2010 might be easier than coming out as trans in 2023. You know, you have, as you mentioned earlier, like, tremendous anti-trans rhetoric in the in the world right now. I mean, not, not just rhetoric, legislation, mm-hmm. violence, hatred, mainstreamized hatred. How much has that been on your mind, specifically as you've been doing this press tour? It's on my mind a lot, you know. Yeah. It's on a lot of people's minds, uh, unfortunately, of course. Um, I suppose it if anything, I do my best to turn it into motivation to continue to be myself and share my story without holding back or not a, like allowing myself to feel uh, affected by the hate that comes towards me. You know, I know who I am and I'm going to express the joy I feel. And I want to be mindful in the sense that it makes me use my privilege and my platform to do what I can in whatever way I can to help create change and hopefully offer, you know, I guess what I can, you know. What's bringing you joy these days? All kinds of stuff. (laughs) I mean, when you go from being absurdly uncomfortable all the time um, to the degree that you can like barely think or function excuse me I go not on, say the F word listen at this point Elliot uh, you're such a Canadian icon that uh, I think you can say fuck in the CBC I okay. think you're allowed thanks CBC yeah no problem one time only yeah. jo- Joni Mitchell's allowed to smoke and you're allowed to say that's, uh, that's okay, what cool. it is yeah. wow that's yeah. an honor congratulations um, <laughs> um, you know to go from being barely able to to think or function to not really understand how people go about their lives like to waking up and feeling present and feeling embodied. I mean, that's joy to me. It's having coffee in the silence with my dog in the morning, truly. Um, so it's, of course, the big obvious moments. And for me, it's also very much the moments in stillness. Mm. And so much for me right now when we do think about all the horrificness in regards to laws being passed and hate towards us being, you know, weaponized and used to to gain votes and power. Really, I feel so much joy when I'm hanging out with my trans friends and we're just together and sharing space and laughing and doing karaoke and, you know, like when I was up here shooting the fourth season, like friends visited and go to Canada's Wonderland and go on roller coasters and walk to High Park and wander around for hours and community. To me, that's key right now for joy is, is community. I just want to tell you how, first of all, how grateful I am to, to get a chance to talk to you about this and just how much love I felt and we all felt for you when we were reading this book. And thanks so much for taking the time and talking to us today. Nice to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I think there's so many things you can take from that conversation. The one that's been sticking through my head is that at the end of the day, all the trappings of fame are fine and all the trappings of like, I don't know, success are fine. But really, it's the community and it's the friends and the family that you have around you that 
really make the biggest impact on your life. That was my conversation with the actor Elliot Page. His memoir, Page Boy, is out now. Uh, you might have just heard that Elliot is shooting the fourth season of the Umbrella Academy Elliot series on Netflix. So Netflix has recently announced that that season will be out next year. That's the Montreal songwriter Charlotte Cardin. That's a song called 99 Nights, which is also the name of her recently released album. My name's Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Do you know Charlotte Cardin? Charlotte Cardin turned a lot of heads with the album that came before this one. She put out an album that won Album of the Year at the Junos, and it was her debut record. And I can't imagine what it's like to win it for your first record and then have to follow it up. So Charlotte dropped 99 Nights in August. The reception has been overwhelmingly positive. It is a beautiful record, but when I spoke to her, it was before she knew how it would be received. So I want to play a little bit of our conversations. We start out by playing her the clip of her winning album of the year at the Junos, and then we talk a little bit about the new record. And then, as a little treat, she sat down at our beautiful Steinway D, our our, our nine-foot piano in our studio, and, and sang for you. All right, here's Charlotte Cardin. And the winner for album of the year is Charlotte Cardin, Phoenix. What went through your uh, head when I played you that clip just then of you winning album of the year? I mean, I just, I got, I, my heart started racing a little bit. Like I felt the excitement. Yeah, it was just such a fun, unexpected turnout, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it it was really great. So I just I was smiling when you played that that little clip. It's it's yeah, good memories. What do you remember from that night? I don't remember that much, to be honest. Um it was it was kind of a very exhilarating, just really fun. And it was nice to um it was also nice to to meet all these artists that I just love listening to and it, it just felt like yeah, it, it was a it was a really fun night and it was just obviously I I really didn't expect to win all those things and I loved that first album I put a lot of myself into it and I I put everything I had into it basically and it was just like it was just nice to feel that kind of love around you know around the project around the music you were you're telling me you were sitting in your chair they were announcing the nominees for album of the year Mm -hmm. and you were like I'm not going to. Well, I mean, there was like The weekend and, and Justin Bieber. <laughs> I was like, I'm for sure not winning this. Like, it's just kind of like surreal. So when they said when they said my name, I was like, I just kind of bla- I blanked out. And the thing is, is that I had won three Junos the night before. And I had only like really prepared the one speech because I was like, I, I didn't think I was going to win anything. So I was like, I'm going to have one like nice little cute speech just in my in back case. pocket just in case. And then the night before I won three different awards. So I was like, oh, like, and then when I won, um, I think that the, the one that was on air was album of the year. I just kind of blanked out a little bit and my speech was kind of all over the place because I just remember, th- remember thinking like, I, 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 I can't believe this is real. Like I just... 
anyways. So my, but it's very good memories. I but. thought your speech, <laughs> your speech seemed coherent to me. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I was mean, sitting in the audience. I was yeah, cheering okay, you on, and I, good, I think I, you sounded, you sounded like you knew what you were doing. Oh well, that's good. No, I, I did not. So it was my first time winning something. It's, it's always, you know. Really fun. Here's the only downside to your first record winning album of the year is that you eventually have to make another record. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I, yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. And now that the, the, the stakes are higher, but, but. Does it feel like the stakes are higher? I mean, a little bit. But at the same time, I don't really think of that at all. Like, it was such a. When Phoenix came out, like, the first album, we had worked on it for three and a half years. Like, it came out, and I was already starting to think of the— I was already writing songs for the next one. So, you know, it's kind of like when you release albums, you're always in the in the next phase, except for, like, when you're touring the album. But a lot of it is, like, music that you wrote years ago. So yeah. you're always kind of a, a few steps ahead. And, um, and so I've just been— so I've I, yeah, it was just like a different. I didn't know when I started writing this album. I didn't even know that Phoenix was going to do that well because it yeah. had just come out and it was just kind of. So it it never really felt like I was you know trying to compare it to the last one or to do anything. Um, yeah, that was linked to the success of the first one. Okay, so maybe not in composition and not in creation, but maybe a little bit now because it's about. Now that you're announcing it and people are talking about it, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a really good album <laughs> that we wrote. I love it, and I'm just excited because it's also different from the first one. Um, it was a completely different process for me going through the, the the you know the creation of that one, and so I'm just looking forward to sharing that part of my music and that part of me that wasn't shared on the first one. So it's just like something different for me and it's just like it's just super exciting. I don't I try not to think about that. You know what? I'll think about it for you apparently. Yeah, think, apparently apparently think it's my job it. yeah, to get yeah. stressed out for you. <laughs> That's what I'm here to do yeah. to feel all the pressure. Yeah. You're like, Tom, I just made a record. I'm yeah. just chill out. Do you um the last time we talked about Phoenix, a lot of the songs that we talked about were about you sort of like, you know, re- sort of reclaiming yourself, reclaiming mm-hmm. your own identity, taking control yeah. Uh, uh, of yourself after you know after being in reality shows and after or a reality show after modeling for a while like taking control of who you are. Why did you find yourself writing about on this? In new this record? album, um, really encapsulates that first summer that um, we started writing the album uh, during during that summer, and it's kind of it's just like it's bittersweet and it's it's. Um, it's me using music as a playground, like expanding my horizons, just really trying to live the present moment because it kind of felt like that was the only thing that was real to me that summer. And and that's why we called it 99 Nights. It's because obviously like a summer isn't exactly 99 Nights, but it's kind of like those first three months of writing that really shaped the entire album. Um, and and yeah, so it's it's a really special one to me and it really takes me back to super a super precise moment of my life with my friends in the studio, just having fun and escaping through music, which is such a beautiful thing. And um, yeah. One of the songs is uh, Confetti. Yeah. I got a lot of questions, but I think I'm just going to get you to tell me what it's about. Yeah. So Confetti is um, basically... What was going on? What's the snapshot? What's the snapshot? So Confetti was actually... 
um, a song that I wrote with my friend Lubalin, and we— The guy from TikTok. Exactly, the guy from TikTok. So for people who don't know, Lubalin yeah. is the guy who t- would take all these Facebook— uh, and post posts yeah. and turn them into. Do you remember those? Yeah, of course, um, of course. What was the one? They were called internet dramas. Uh, she stole my broccoli. Yeah, casserole recipe yeah, eight yeah. years ago. Whoa. And yeah. claimed it was hers. And claimed it was hers. Yeah, it's so good. Like, <laughs> massive, massive tracks. Yeah, he's brilliant yeah. and he's so funny, but he's an amazing songwriter. Like, he doesn't only write joke songs. He's yeah, we just, had like, him on for his own record here. He's amazing. Yeah. He makes beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And we wrote that song together. Um, and we're both kind of like two big introverts. And we've really bonded over that, like uh, over the fact that we hate being at parties. And it's just like kind of this whole emotional, you know, charge when we're when we're, when we're we're at parties and social events where you have to like put on a face or just be like outgoing when you really feel like you're dying inside um and so we wrote this on confetti and it's basically a party track for people who hate being at the party and and so we kind of we just really wrote it for our people you know can i can i, can I just tell you me me too yeah like, i got this like i got this social like what's more social than this but it's also very controlled it's also controlled yeah. and it but but it's like I think being in our position where, like, we have to, you know, we have to play the game and we have to be sociable people and we have to, it's, it, it makes it, sometimes it just makes it really hard for, I mean, I, I know that I'm a very introverted person. Like, yeah. I gain my energy from downtime, yeah. from, like, alone time. And yeah. then I can, like, build up the energy for <laughs> moments like this that which I'm enjoying by the way I'm Thank not you, I'm not way. in That's pain right, right now <laughs> there was a light that went off that said yeah, make exactly. sure you mention you're enjoying it right now there was a laser pointer at your head at the moment um, but yeah so it's it, that's why I wrote this song specifically I feel like it's also like something that I'll say and people are like what like yeah, me too. you're an introvert and I'm like yes like it's two very separate aspects of my personality but like moments that I choose to enjoy will probably be with like very few people if even with uh, one person, you know. All right, so you're gonna you're gonna play confetti off of um, uh, 99 Nights. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here on our nine foot Steinway at Q <laughs> Studio is Charlotte Cardan performing confetti. <laughs> Find me 
performed live at our uh, beautiful Steinway piano in our studio. That was Charlotte Cardin with a song called Confetti. If you want to see a video of Charlotte performing that song, you can find it on the YouTube channel. Once again, just look up, I guess, look up Charlotte Cardin, CBCQ. Yeah, that should do it. Her new album, 99 Nights, is out now. And that's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, 20 years ago, the band Metric burst onto the scene with an undeniably infectious album called Old World Underground, Where Are You Now? Emily and Jimmy from Metric have been with the band since the very beginning. They'll tell you about their lean years scraping by in New York to all of a sudden flying around the world to play the biggest music festivals and the story behind their latest album. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.